This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Lots to get through today. We're in Australia to talk about England limping through the group stages of the World Cup and some big stories yesterday. New Zealand going out, Morocco getting a win and Germany shocked by Colombia. Great scenes in Sydney. Then we'll talk about Jordan Henderson. Massive hypocrite or just doing his best for his family. Something you clearly can't do on just 200 grand a week. But should we judge him any differently to anyone else joining the Saudi juggernaut? Then there's some transfers. A blonde Nordic striker called Hoyland is moving to Manchester. No chance of any comparisons with blonde Nordic strikers already in the city. Then there's the mandatory Mbappe and Kane chat. Before we rattle through some other moves, any other business, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, Lars Sivertson, welcome. Hi, Max. Uh, live from Melbourne, Salon Andy Hickman. Hello, Salon. Good evening, Max. And also live from Melbourne. It's almost like it's a nice place to live. Uh, Tarek Panja, where do we find you, Tarek? Uh, I'm in a, a cell-type unit in the, in the uh, press centre at the, the stadium in Melbourne. OK, um, uh, let's begin, just in case there's any background noise when Tarek is saying interesting things. That's why. Uh, let's start with England then. Um, they've won both their games 1-0 against Haiti and Denmark. Um, they haven't been amazing, Salon. You've been at both games. What have you made of it? I want to say interesting, yet a little bit predictable going into this tournament. We knew we weren't going to have the same side that finished the Euros. We knew that we might not have the same energy and excitement and fluid play that we were going to have. And we were going to be working quite a few things out as we went into this tournament. First game, quite dull, um, quite cagey. It's quite clear that goals with that starting lineup weren't going to come from opening from open play. Um, so a big yeah, breath of fresh air when we got a penalty and, and then got that penalty again. Um, the second game, 35, first 35 minutes, incredible. Uh, felt like the England of old, felt like we were watching, um, yeah, the team that, that won the Euro so convincingly. Um, and I think part of that was down to the changes that Serena Wigman made uncharacteristically. Um, but after that Kira Walsh injury, I think the, the, the mood changed, the team changed slightly and it was more of a, we're 1-0 up and we need to get this job done. So let's do that. So, yeah, hopefully tomorrow night we see more than one goal scored, which would be a, a nice surprise. Um, but if we do just keep winning 1-0, then I'm also not going to complain. Tarek, what's the the mood amongst the journalists? Do people still fear England or not really? I, I must say, I haven't really been able to follow England at, at all during this tournament. And, 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 and <laughs> I can tell you why as well. It's very hard to watch these games on TV here uh, because... The the way the rights work, um, only 15 matches are free to air. So far, it's largely been the Australian team and the others are on pay TV. And if you're like me or anyone travelling here, hotels tend not to have the games on. So it's been it's been very difficult. I would love to watch all the England games and, and, and as many as I can, but it's it's proving to be quite difficult. You need to get a subscription out and it's it's quite complicated. And actually, Salon, that's insanity, isn't it? If you want a country to get behind a tournament and the vibe is that Australia is really behind the tournament compared to, say, France, certainly from what Susie said, you know, the feeling about it, to not have all those games on free-to-air telly is mad. It's honestly, Max, it's it's a privilege to be here and to be able to go to the games because you, you really get that sense. And part of me is like, wow, you can really feel that there's a tournament happening. You can see the advertising everywhere. You can hear people talking about in the street, but largely that's concentrated around the Matildas who are on 
you know normal telly that you don't have to pay for we were actually traveling from uh we decided to drive from sydney to brisbane for england's opening game which if anyone knows a bit of geography about australia it's it's quite a long way yeah and we we <laughs> also big did place in it australia big old place and we also did it in an electric car so you have to stop every you know 200 kilometers to stick charge in for about an hour anyway one of the places we timed a stop was in this place called Coffs Harbour, like a roadside town between um, Sydney and Brisbane. And we Googled a sports bar because we were like, we need to watch USA Vietnam at 11 o'clock. I went in three different pubs plus a veterans centre, which had a sports bar in, none of whom had the right subscriptions to be able to watch the game. So we then ended up just buying an Opta subscription there and then and watching it on a laptop in a shopping centre to be able to try and watch the game. So yeah, it, it has been difficult, but now we've got our Optus, we're sorted. But um, yeah, it, it is a, it's a bit of a weird vibe knowing that every, people at home can watch it on BBC and ITV and out here you can't watch it as easily unless you paid for it. Lars, back to England. Do, do you think Serena Wiegman should go full Jose? now and just say listen we've got injuries Kira Walsh is out we don't know how long for uh, it's not an ACL we don't think so that's good news and just say listen if we're going to win this tournament it's unlikely given the injuries but we could sort of shithouse our way there I think you never go full Jose Max <laughs> uh, half Jose what, no never, never go full Jose no you, you've still got good good players in this team i think i think that's an excessively defeatist approach no i mean salon will know this a lot better than me but i is the, i don't think there's a need to go full jose i don't think we have the team to go full jose at all i don't we've not we've not got a part of the bus team anymore we've just lost one of our best defensive midfielders to injury we don't know when she's going to be back we have a returning a center back who is in millie bright who is incredible but is returning from injury and we saw the the fragileness of that, of her in that in that first opening game we don't have Leah Williamson at the back. We've, we're deciding between playing a very uh, we're, we're deciding play, between playing a centre forward as our left back over a defensive minded left back. We don't have the sort of infrastructure to be a team that just sits deep and absorbs the pressure and parks the bus. We are going to be attacking. It's just interesting that we haven't been able to score that many goals from open play. And I think that's the thing we kind of need to work out. But with Lauren James's addition in the last game was yeah that that feels really encouraging for for ch- the China game. Uh, so beyond uh, England, you were uh, you were there to see Colombia beat Germany, which was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, just a brilliant football match. The first Colombia goal was amazing, and then just the sort of absolute scenes in the ninety seventh minute. Honestly, I'm a Colombia fan now. It was phenomenal. It was one of the best <laughs> games I've ever been to. It was it was reminiscent of of the of the Euros final. The same scoreline, the same sort of last minute jeopardy in terms of that that result. I went in. I went to the the Colombia South Korea game last week, and I was like, I am following this team. The atmosphere is incredible. It's like being in Colombia in that stand. It was an away game for Germany, but the players were exceptional. And Martinez, the number nineteen at the back, who tragically we had a really horrible. We don't know. I haven't looked whether she she's all right or not, but she looked like she went off with a suspected concussion at the end. She had Alex Pop in her back pocket. She was incredible. And then you've got Linda Caicedo playing how she did. The atmosphere was unbelievable. And this Colombian team have definitely stolen my heart. And I, I'm probably more of a Colombia fan than I am an England fan at the moment, I think. Just the mention of the Colombian fans there, it did make me think about the sort of socio-cultural moment here in Australia with the World Cup being here. And the and the type of immigration Australia's had in, in, in the big cities, be it in sort of Melbourne, Sydney, even Brisbane as well. You've seen big immigrant communities, big migrant communities supporting the teams. I noticed Brazil uh, had loads of support in the games 
they've played the Philippines as well. They lost the, the last game there 5-0 and were eliminated from the tournament, had the shock uh, victory over New Zealand. Uh, and, and they were singing and dancing and, and, and just celebrate the moment. I thought that's been quite fantastic here. And again, one of the sad parts of not being able to watch it on TV for the people who live here from those countries. Yeah, totally. Uh, Lars, what have you made in Norway? <laughs> well, we got through. Uh, just about this. There's been no shortage of drama, certainly. And uh, it was it was good to have that sort of um, sort of like floodgatey uh, moment and feeling of the last game. But I mean, obviously, the sort of the strangeness of the Switzerland game, uh, of it sort of not being very well. There was the awfulness of the New Zealand game, the strangeness of the Switzerland game, and all of the noise around it, with Ada Hegebard going off when she did. Obviously, that was confirmed to be an injury, as she said. She had felt something just before the game and missed the next game, so there's no reason to suggest otherwise, but it was very odd. And then Colleen Garmhansen being very upset about not starting and saying some big things after the game. And then apologizing, and I think it's completely... I think it's fair if you're expecting to start a game at the World Cup and you're benched and you have some thoughts about that and maybe you, you're a bit upset and you go a bit far in the media, but, you know, you apologize afterwards, we move on. But it was just kind of the nature of some of the things she said. I suspect there'll be an inquest after the tournament. I think when you're when the best, most talented player in your squad probably says that she's felt stepped on for about a year, that feels like something someone needs to look into. But she's kind of apologized, and then with the big win against the Philippines, there was also another story in the Norwegian in the Norwegian state broadcaster NRK, which is like our BBC, who are quite a serious public broadcaster, about there being a lot of uh, unhappiness with Hegerisa, the manager within the squad, and and you get these kind of stories during a tournament. But NRK again would not jump on something like this if they were if it weren't properly sourced. So. It's not a very it doesn't seem to be a very happy camp at the moment. Was there was the NRK source Beth Mead? <laughs> she, for context, Hege <laughs> Risa was the team GB manager who benched who did not bring yeah. Beth Mead to the Olympics. So Beth Mead has a has quite a lot of beef against Hege Risa, but she's dropping players like her. But it was one of those stories. It it had six people on the byline. Actually five, five journalists. Three based in Oslo and two in Auckland on the byline of the story. So there were many sources. One can only assume that quite a lot of people put this together, suggesting yeah, they have bullet points and all. But the the players are upset about a lack of in-game management, unclear messages that it's too quiet in the dressing room, and not enough uh, concrete sort of uh, things are done and, and feedback when Plan A it doesn't work are the sort of which sound eerily similar to the criticism of the previous manager, uh, the, the Swedish gentleman who was in charge before. So things are not great in in uh, in uh, the Norwegian squad, but we are through after that big win against the Philippines, which, you know, anything can happen in a tournament, but it doesn't seem great. Tarek, we're what, an hour or so away from uh, kickoff, or maybe two hours from kickoff from the Australia-Canada game. And that is... Obviously, people people will know the result before uh, they listen to this pod. But you know, Sam, the Sam Kerr story, like I presume, it is absolutely everywhere there. Yeah, yeah, front page, middle page, back page, um, radio, telly. It's 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 the main football storyline that has kind of been the scene that's run through this tournament. From like, if you go back, it was an hour 
before the start of the World Cup that the host nation has lost its one star player. I mean, if you if you think about that, the, the kind of enormity of of that moment, because no one got wind of it. She was injured the day before. Literally, when the team sheets were made public, they 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 uh, put a tweet out or a statement, and Sam Kerr went on Instagram. I mean, seventy five thousand fans making their way to to that opening game in Sydney. I mean, it does make your your kind of stomach um, sort of drop a bit, doesn't it? And then ever since. And the performances of the Australians haven't helped. Sam Kerr and that left calf have been and has been the dominant storyline. Yeah, and New Zealand already out, Ceylon, and it's sort of a, you need hosts to do well in tournaments. Well, it feels like you need them to do well in tournaments for tournaments to be a massive success, but I don't know if that, is that just something we say? Or it does feel important. New Zealand did do well in that they got their first win ever at a world cup i believe so and and i think there is you know i saw ali riley's comments post game about how much she'd hoped and believed that they had done something for the nation and they definitely did the joy on that opening game right that was the first game to kick off i was i was actually outside the sydney olympic stadium ahead of the matildas opener where all the bars were filled um with people finished watching the end of the new zealand game and all the aussies were, were going for the new zealanders and absolutely buzzing when when um they got that result and that was really special and that was magical and that will be kept as a moment from this tournament that will live long so i think they they overachieved in the sense that Ali Riley went into that, that game and was like, I just want us to win our opening game and I'd like us to get out of the group. They won the opening game. And I think for the Aussies tonight, well, as, as you said, people listen to this after we know the result, but tonight is their very much do or die moment. But the Matildas brand is that they never say die. Like that's their whole thing. It's they are, these are the moments where they're like, you know, backs against the wall. We're, we perform in these moments. Like, and I mean, debatable considering the Nigeria game when that was pretty much never say die moment and they did die by losing 3-2 um so we we will see and I think it's really I'm going to the game tonight I'm obviously going to be supporting the Matildas because we know the feeling and the impact of what a home what home soil success does for women's football for the media for press for girls for boys for everyone basically it's a beautiful beautiful thing so I think it would be a real real shame if they did did go out tonight if if the Australians go home the tournament is is is, is seriously going to diminish in the in the local context and Max you'll know that perhaps better than than than, than the three of us on this part um You've got Australian rules football, rugby league, and this, this tournament is taking place at the same time as as those competitions are running. Um, the Ashes are just about to finish. The, the kind of sporting competition for eyeballs here is is enormous. Um, and as as Salon said, the um, the Matildas are a brand. They're extremely popular, and everyone is talking about them. Uh, and you know, today like we're recording this before the game, but this afternoon, here a few hours before the game, I was asking people if they're going to watch the game today. Some people are, some people aren't. Um, but but the Matildas are popular, and, and and this chap said to me, "I'm watching the Matildas tonight. Who are they playing?" So I mean, the the, t- the team itself is is so key to, to to the Australians' hearts, even more so than almost a tournament, or more than the tournament, I'd say. It's worth saying as well, so actually that. That there haven't been loads of hammerings in this tournament, and we have had upsets. You know, um, you know, Morocco beating South Korea like that is a massive moment. If you look at, I don't know how much FIFA rankings count, but like there's a huge gap between them, and 
And so that, and you know, Japan at the moment are beating Spain 3-0. Japan a very good side, of course. But it feels like, you know, every game is competitive. So Colombia, you know, beating Germany. These things are really important for women's football, I think. Huge. This tournament will be known as that tournament. I tweeted the other day, it's the World Cup that keeps on giving. Like it's 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 what we've all wanted. Like they've got debutantes in this tournament doing really, really well. Philippines getting results, Jamaica holding France to a draw, Haiti making us look England look terrible. Morocco getting their first win, first Arab nation to do it, Colombia beating Germany. Like there are upsets in this tournament that are reminiscent of of actually what football can be for women across the world rather than just in this in the nations where there's been more investment and more development the question that is on my lips and other people's lips is like well how good nigeria could nigeria be if they were paid how could how good could zambia be if they didn't have to deal with everything they're dealing with with their coach how how good would some of these nations be if they actually had the infrastructure and resources and that is where that's we can't just rest on our laurels on this tournament and be like cool you know we've seen a gap close and that's great for football we have to be like right well these women are serious athletes they are doing really well against some really developed nations with a lot more resources imagine if we resource them in the same way and that's what we need to keep pushing for after this Guardian Women's Football Weekly is out three times a week through the tournament. I know Celon, you're part of the Guardian Women's Football family, as well as this one, of course. And we're all a family. Um, and we're putting some of those into our feed, but download that wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we'll be back in a second and uh, we'll begin part two talking about Jordan Henderson moving to Saudi Arabia. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, we are going on tour, starting in London, uh, in the Troxy, in the trendy uh, East London on the 13th of November. Uh, also, Bristol on the 14th, Manchester on the 15th, Dublin on the 20th and 21st, Brighton on the 22nd. Much like the next, next Ashes, we're not going far enough north. We apologise. Um, we will, of course, come back to the north. But uh, if you go to theguardian.com slash FWTour23, uh, link is in the description Two on the website. Uh, you can buy tickets and come and watch us. Uh, all right, Jordan Henderson's joined uh, Saudi Arabian sign Al Etifak, agreeing a deal reportedly worth close to a sort of mind-boggling seven hundred thousand pounds a week, hundred thousand pounds a day, even on your day off. The montage they used on their social media channels um, saw any image of him wearing a rainbow captain's armband greyed out. Uh, as we've mentioned on this podcast many times, Saudi Arabia is a country where homosexuality is illegal; it's punishable by death. Henderson has been an outspoken ally of the LGBTQ plus community. So it sort of feels, Ceylon, as a Liverpool fan, harder to process than the other moves this summer. Whether we should judge him differently to any other footballer, I don't know. But how do you feel? The overriding feeling that I have, and I think this is quite sad, is probably just one of emptiness. I'm just like, I feel a bit hollow about it all. I don't necessarily feel super angry. I don't feel sad and hurt. I just feel kind of a, a vacant emptiness in me, which is something that I don't really associate as with, with being a Liverpool fan. I'll start with, obviously, being gay in Saudi Arabia is illegal and punishable by death penalty. Jordan Henderson is a player who has actively gone out of his way to be an ally or actually the piece that he wrote about being an ally. He's like, oh, I don't think I'm deserving of this, but this is what I think and actually... I think it's actually really helpful to ground ourselves in some of, of what he said. And I was reading about it the other day. In November 2021, he wrote the program notes for the Rainbow Laces campaign. And he wrote, um, 
But I do believe when you see something that is clearly wrong and makes another human being feel excluded, you should stand shoulder to shoulder with them. You also have a responsibility to educate yourself better around the challenges they experience. That's where my own position on homophobia in football is rooted. Before I'm a footballer, I'm a parent, a husband, a son, a brother, and a friend to the people in my life who matter so much to me. The idea that any of them would feel excluded from playing or attending a football match simply for being and identifying as who they are blows my mind. The idea they have to hide from being accepted, but that's exactly how too many members of the LGBT plus community feel. We know this because they tell us, so we should listen, support them and work to make it better. He wrote those words two years ago. He has now accepted a deal and a move to a country where it is illegal to be exactly of the identity of the people that he is talking to advocate for that leaves a, a real emptiness and a, a really just a bad taste because, but it also makes me try and really interrogate this. Like where is that coming from? Is it, he must have an internal narrative that rationalizes this decision for him. Like I think anyone who goes against their principles in some way is, has a, has their own narrative, right? We all make up stories in our head to say, Oh, it's okay because his might be, it's okay because I've got a family to look after for the rest of my life and I need to think about supporting them and helping them live accustomed to. Right, that's one argument. He also His narrative might be, oh, by being there, by going there, by being public about it, I might be able to change things. That might be his narrative. And it's it's honestly baffling to to work out where that is, but there's got to be something that's motivating it. And I think, yeah, it's just made me lose, lose hope in some ways of just, I think ultimately footballers are just vessels that we project our values and morals onto, but not when they are so explicit in what they do go out their way to say, because so many of them don't. So if you are going to write the program notes, either you believe that or you think it's a good move for your brand. So I'm just, I'm, there's loads going on. And I think, sorry, I'm just really going off here, but there, there is also then this whole other dynamic of a, are we being is there a western exceptionalism where we have this kind of moral superiority that we hold about playing in the US where actually Messi's just gone and it's illegal to teach same sex relationships in Florida but we're not you know there's so many different dynamics to this conversation that make it really difficult and i think twitter is the worst place to have those those discussions so i'm just trying to yeah process a lot of it as a liverpool fan and what it means for me but it ultimately i think the bottom line is that it it dampens my love and experience and and fandom for Liverpool Football Club and the men's team um and I hold that in in massive contrast where I'm at a Women's World Cup where players will be dating their teammates or dating their opposition or finish the game and run and kiss their girlfriends in the stands and football doesn't have to be what it is in the men's game football doesn't have to be that we're having this conversation about Jordan Henderson and Saudi Arabia and what it means for queer people it, it can be different to that and that's what I'm experiencing so yeah, a lot, a lot going on for me in the head and the heart, I'd say. Well, just to mention this tournament, there was that effort from Saudi tourism, of course, to be one of the sponsors of the Women's World Cup. And a lot of the opposition to that came from the players themselves. Solon's explained one of the reasons why so many, so many players are in, in um, same-sex relationships. It is, uh, you know, promoting a country that explicitly bans, would ban them, um, in, you know, enjoying full, their full lives in that country would seem completely antithetical to, to to what the tournament is here in Australia. But but the point, uh, you know, we, we can find, we can end up contorting ourselves and having these real difficult moments. Um, and Salon, you mentioned um, Messi in, in, um, in, in America, for example. But I think we have to get to 
first principles of what this is in Saudi Arabia. This is a state-backed football program. This isn't a, uh, a football team doing things. This is a part of Saudi Arabia's project. Uh, Messi and, and Miami and all these teams, this is not the US State Department running this thing. This is a, a you know a team that has decided to buy someone and play a footballer. I, and I get I get some of some of the debates we can have around this, but this is Saudi Arabia's um, project, and and these are the people they're essentially buying, and they're buying some of the fa- most famous people in the world because um, men's football is today, I think, bar, bar none, the biggest cultural. Uh, global cross-cultural interest in the world and and the people they're buying are some of the most well-known so these are now pitchmen and spokesmen for Saudi Arabia any which way you 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 look at this Uh, we wrote a story about Lionel Messi's contract with Saudi tourism um, a, a couple of months ago and in that in that contract explicitly it says he must do nothing to tarnish the Saudi image now presumably all of these people have done that as well so I don't see um, the, uh, the idea that Jordan Henderson is now going to go to uh, Etifak or Saudi Arabia, wherever, and suddenly become a spokesman for the LGBT community from there is, is highly unlikely. So I think that that ship has sailed. Um, and funny enough, when I arrived in Australia, Thomas Hitzelsberger was here as well. Obviously, a very famous German international footballer, played in the Premier League. Um, and upon his retirement came out uh, as gay and has been speaking about his, his relationship uh, with the game and his identity for, for the past decade or so. And he, he made this point on Twitter as well, but he was telling us while we were here, he said, you know, and this is, this is why it's really, really important, the Jordan Henderson thing in particular. He said, is it just about branding? Did Jordan Henderson become an ally of this movement because it's good for brand Jordan Henderson. Now, I don't know. Only Jordan Henderson will, will know that and, and, and you know, maybe he'll speak about that. But the point is, the fact that we're now going to question this, it, it risks every, us thinking about everyone else. Whenever they do something, are they doing it with the right intentions or is there a commercial reason for it? Is there something else? Do you want likes on Twitter? Is there, is there something else at play? And that's the really sad thing here. Now, good luck to, 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 to the guy if he wants to make, um, you know, a lot more money. He's already fabulously wealthy. Funny enough, someone on social media said, you know, he's a boy from Sunderland just trying to look after his family. You know, as though he's just come out of the pits. You know, this guy's been a decorated Premier League footballer, very, very wealthy for the best part of a decade. Um, you know, Yes, the offer is enormous, and he's made that decision. But the idea that he needs this to look after his family, again, it's, it's, it feels nonsensical, given that we know how much he's earned as a Premier League football player. Yeah, and actually, the, but the interesting thing, and, and Lars, the criticism we get when we have this conversation is, well, if somebody offered you a, you know, and we've talked, joked about it on the pod, you know, suddenly it was Riyadh Football Weekly, we'd all go and take £5 million. Here is, a, here is an example where... It's, it's much easier to have morals and principles when it doesn't aff- actually affect you or actually it, it's positive for you to have those morals and principles. Now you're suddenly conflicted. And I think that the thing that saddens me is not to judge him perhaps more than anyone else going to Saudi. It's that I thought this might be someone who said, actually, do you know what? And, 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 if, and, if, and one day a footballer will make a statement like that, a men's footballer, 
And it will make a big difference because then suddenly you can go look at everyone else and go, well, you can do this. And, and I've said before in the pod is that I have a, it's a part of me that just, you know, for a professional in any line of work, if you decide you want to just kind of hold your nose and do this for a couple of years and then go home and count your money, okay. But I think the thing that Barcelona and Tariq uh, touch on, which is kind of more serious than Jordan Henderson, is the knock-on effect, how, what, it, what it looks like. Because whenever footballers speak out about anything, there's a certain segment of, of, of people in the media and on social media who will say that they're just kind of virtue signaling is that I was I, t- I tend to make a point of avoiding people who th- th- throw that phrase around. They're inevitably terrible people, but I mean it is a it is a phrase that gets brought out. And the the kind of unfortunate thing I take what Silon said on board. I think that's very perceptive about how he probably has an internal narrative. But it is a, he is a guy who I'm sure he meant those things when he said them. It just turned out he doesn't mean them quite enough to leave this amount of money on the table. And. I think that this kind of causes a breakdown of trust in uh, in our idols that doesn't just affect Jordan Henderson. I think the next time someone steps up and says says nice things about whatever cause they're interested in, people will take it that much less seriously because there'll be an assumption that, well, you know, if the money was right, you'd kind of turn your back on those principles soon enough because, I mean, the other ones did. That's it. and. Max, you, this, Lars, it's the breakdown of trust you mentioned. And Max, you said, like, is it that we thought he was different? And I think maybe that's naivety. Maybe that's just we're projecting this onto him. But it's not when you are explicitly vocal about something that you, no one's asking you to be vocal about. I spoke in a documentary last summer that Nike and Liverpool Football Club made about Jordan Henderson and his leadership and his allyship, about mental health, about the queer community, um, about the NHS. On that are a vast range of spokespeople from Jonathan Wilson to guys who run the Anfield Rap to Loyal Karner, the rapper, to Jurgen Klopp, Virgil van Dijk. And every single one of us in that interview spoke about what this man represents and that he feels different. And he and there's a genuineness that he cares about something bigger than himself and that he does it quietly. He does it because it because he believes in it and he organises the captains in the WhatsApp group during the pandemic to support the NHS, right? He's the guy that's just doing it quietly, quite understated, not necessary for his brand. And Nike and Liverpool came together to make this documentary about him. And you watch that documentary and and the way that Jurgen Klopp speaks about him and you think, wow, there's something there. And this is why that feels, this feels so abrasive. Like this feel, I, I, I'm used to seeing men's football and seeing all these players go to wherever they're going to go and knowing that it's money driven and money motivated. But there's something in you as an optimist that thinks, or maybe just a very naive person. There's something in it you think there's, there's, there's got to be something that means more and there's got to be some people that hold themselves to to these standards. And all of these people are giving him these character references in this documentary and then this has happened not even 12 months later. That's what I can't compute here. That's why there must be something in his head that is, I can rationalise this and it's okay for me to do this. And, and I'd love to know what that is, but we will probably never know. Yeah, but the, the thing is, and Max, you alluded to it, the actual unveiling on social media, they've not only bought this guy, they they unveiled him like that by turning the armband into something, you know, into grayscale. There's many ways of unveiling um, a, a football player. But that video they produce, it's almost, you know, I don't know what, I wasn't there in the room when they make these things, but it's almost like a bit of trolling. 
uh, uh, we've we've now got this guy, and now look what we've done. We've now turned the rainbow armband into something you can't even see. Given that, for two weeks, this wasn't a transfer that happened overnight. It wasn't like a flash, was it? We know it was two weeks in the making. There's all this um, commentary and talking about Jordan Henderson's impending move to, to his team, coached by Steven Gerrard, etc. So they had time to produce, how are we going to unveil the, the player? How are we going to announce the signing? The fact they chose to do that, again, it really sticks in the crawl. It's almost like we can do what we want. And, and that's what it seems like. So you stuck with me this phrase that he came out with. I do believe when you see something that's clearly wrong and makes another human being feel excluded, you should stand shoulder to shoulder with them. He's going to be very busy in Saudi Arabia, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with with many, many people, because it's not just the LGBTQ community. Of course, all the issues we spoke about, you spoke about more so, much more so than me, uh, to do with the World Cup in Qatar with migrant workers and people being mistreated, is also true in Saudi Arabia. It's a huge problem there. Uh, there's another thing that's clearly wrong with which uh, and people who are uh, excluded in a manner which suggests Jordan Henderson will passionately stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Uh, I suspect he will not. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear anything from him about any of these things. I, I, I doubt he'll be put up for media duties at the next England camp. Uh, if he's even in the next England camp now that he's kind of not playing serious football anymore, uh, it, it is... I think, yeah, no, I think Salon really nailed it with the whole emptiness thing. I, I, I can't get too annoyed about it anymore either. You just kind of feel like it's just a bit shit. Tarek, can I ask you a, a, um, a sort of administrational technical question? Are there any issues with, I know there's some links with Chelsea's ownership and PIF. And I obviously know, you know, Newcastle selling a player to the Saudi league in Alan San Maximum feels what's the right word, convenient. Are there any, What are those issues something that we should be concerned about? I think they're issues we should be concerned about. But I think the people who are concerned with the issues that we should be concerned about, FIFA, authorities, they really don't seem to care about this. And the, 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 the circus will roll on until something goes catastrophically wrong in a few years and they'll be like, oh, God, how, how has this happened? You know, how, how has it come to this? Right now, the, the authorities, again, seem to be standing by and waving all of this stuff through. There are no rules, um, it seems, on, on multi-club ownership in Saudi Arabia. And, and there isn't any, any, any issue. The Premier League has something. It's to do with related party transactions. And it was essentially bought in for sponsorship. When you, because of the issues around Manchester City and the UAE owners there and the bunch of Abu Dhabi sponsors, then the Newcastle deal happened, and in anticipation of uh, you know a stream of Saudi sponsors, they wanted to create a um, a system where yeah, if you get a sponsor from from someone that is linked to your owner, we can measure it for a, a fair value benchmark it against other sponsorships. So that exists, and now they're saying that might be added to four players. So if St. Maximum was sold for, I don't know, 700 million euros, someone would have said, hang on a minute, uh, I smell a, a ratto here. It, it should be closer to, what, 30 million or 15 million. I don't know. How do you measure a, the, the value of a footballer? Uh, and, and this is the kind of difficulty the game finds itself in with, with these state owners. 
All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, um, we'll look at some uh, hopefully mindless transfer business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Should we start with Kylian Mbappe then? A player who's refreshingly turned down the Saudi move to stick with the uh, beautiful PSG. Well, he doesn't want to stick with that one, does he? But anyway, you take the point. Uh, Lars, where's he going to be? It's just funny, the whole situation with Mbappe. I find it very amusing. Mostly that it's interesting that PSG seem to finally be putting their foot down about something, which is interesting. But it's just they've, this is the bet they've made. Like, the, 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 everyone knows that he wants to go to Real Madrid. And, and that was the logical thing that should have happened when he instead signed a new contract um, last year, was it? And he signed a two-year contract with an option of a third-year extension, but the option is on his side, right? And the club treated it as if he'd signed a three-year deal, which he hadn't. He'd signed a two-year deal. And at the end of this one-year deal, he's decided, you know, he doesn't want to use that option. He wants to do just one more year because, obviously, he doesn't want to be there. He wants to be at Real Madrid. Everyone knows this. But he's just been offered an incredible amount of money to stay at PSG for a bit longer. And then you have Nasr El-Khalifi, coming out saying that, well, this is impossible that he leaves for free. Well, well, no, I'm sorry, Nasser. This is quite possible. This is literally the contract that you've handed out. Fully entitles Mbappe to stay at PSG for one more year and then leave on a free to Real Madrid, which is what he wants to do. But they're now in this weird situation where PSG, they don't want this to happen, so they want to push him out the door somewhere and try to get some money for him. Uh, are they going to bench him for a season? I mean, they could, just out of spite. That would be funny. Uh, but it would be sad for Mbappe, obviously, leading up to the Euros next year. It's been suggested he could be loaned somewhere, but I don't see how that does anything for PSG. Their point is that they don't want him to walk away for free. Him going on loan somewhere and then walking away for free doesn't kind of tick any boxes from the PSG perspective as far as I can see it. So they want someone to pay a lot of money for him, whereas what he wants to do is to go to Real Madrid for free at the end of the season. I suspect he'll just stay and they'll have to play him because they'll look stupid if they don't. I mean, if ever there was an unused substitute who would be really quick at those shuttle runs after the game when the you know the people who've played and the managers are being interviewed, Kylian Mbappe would be quite a good one in a bib, just doing doggies up and down the pitch until uh, you know he's allowed to go back in. And um, what about, Lars, I'll stick with you, Rasmus Hoyland, uh, who's gone to Manchester United. Yeah. How high is your Lund? Yeah, 72 million to Manchester United. What do we need to know about this man? About him? He's quite young. He hasn't scored a lot of goals yet. He's got potential, but he will be compared to Erling Haaland all the time. Yeah, you, you kind of um, beat me to the punch there. You know, he's a tall, blonde Nordic player who favours his left foot, who's deceptively quick for his size. Feel like that's worked out well in Manchester before. I mean, there there is some precedent here. That that seems to be a good thing in that part of the world. I, it's a really unfair comparison to make, and it's a really big transfer fee uh, when you look at his sort of goal scoring record and whatever. But the, the striker position is very fidgety. There there aren't that many great options out there on the market. And in Holon, you get a guy who is is really tall. Uh, is quick for his size, uh, runs really well with the ball, has shown that he can score goals in a top league, and, and he's still very, very young. So the potential is huge, the upside is huge, but but United are paying a kind of transfer fee that you would think you'd get someone who's the finished article for that kind of money, and, and they're not. But they are getting someone who's young and has a big upside and a potential big, big future. 
the thing is, Tarek, Manchester United have spent a lot of money on a lot of players that haven't necessarily worked brilliantly. Pogba, you know, Anthony, I know is young, but it, you know, as yet not amazing. Sancho again. So I'm not sure the point I'm trying to make. It's an interesting point that you can spend millions of pounds on a player. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll be hugely successful. This guy might be. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You mentioned those. And I think since Alex Ferguson retired, actually, in 2013, the 10 years, I think they've spent more money than they ever did um, in the period when um, Alex Ferguson was in charge and they were winning all those trophies and, and, you know, were really one of the dominant teams. Since then, um, you know, you can name... You need another podcast probably to name all the all the players that have come through those doors and all the all the transfer fees that, that have been um, spent. I think also it's a team game, isn't it? They, they probably want Hoyland because Ten Hag has a system of, of playing. The, the, the idea that this guy is going to come in and score, I don't know, 50 goals might not be part of, part of the strategy. If Manchester United end up winning... I don't know, winning the Premier League or getting close to winning the Premier League and, 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 and advancing further in the Champions League, getting to the closing stages. And, 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 and this guy's contributed, a, a, you know, in a great way. Then it's, it's a decent transfer, isn't it? And, and when it comes to prices, it's just, it's just such an insane industry. The, this summer as well, we add the Saudi element in a transfer industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, has gone, has gone absolutely nuts. Great for people who want to, you know, sell, uh, sell a story now and again. It, it, it's, just, it's just mad. And the Kylian Mbappe, I mean, look, what are we talking about? A 300 million euro bid for a guy who's up for a free transfer in a, in a year's time. That's got a lot of attention to Saudi, whether they get him or not. Got a load of attention on Al-Hilal, brought more attention to... To, to Mbappe, there's all sorts of other things at play nowadays, even just with a transfer bid, let alone buying a player. Actually, sorry to interject, but like Tariq is right to go back to the Mbappe thing, which we moved on from maybe too quickly, which is just, just on that bid, I don't know what you think, Tariq, but my impression was it's such a humiliating bid from the Saudi side of it because they're offering this much money for him to come and then reportedly the deal was you can leave again after one year. Like sort of so implicit, implicit in the bid is this idea that we know you don't want to be here, like, but here is out. It's like they, it's like if you fancy someone who's with uh, someone who's more exciting than you, and, and you sort of, and they, and they, they suddenly maybe become available, but you know they fancy someone else really. But you're like, oh, you can, you can be with me for a while, and then you're just gonna wander <laughs> off. And oh, here, here's seven hundred million euros as well, by the way. It's like it's such a. It's it's really humiliating uh, from the Saudis' perspective that this bid, if the details are correct as reported, it, it, it is in that sense. Yeah, you can. You, you, we're happy for you to use us for for your own ends. But on the other hand, the numbers it, they stop making any kind of sense at all, don't they? I mean, it just gives you the idea. Um, uh, not to get into all the live golf stuff, but this is a country that essentially bought golf, just wrote a check and has taken golf away. The, 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 the numbers don't mean anything to these guys. They're going to say, I want Kylian Mbappe. It's like going to Harrods saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a load of things and I'll, I might use them for a bit, I might not, but I can afford it. And, and that, that, that is what we're, we're talking about here. It, it, <laughs> what do you do? Who, who's going to be the counterparty? Who's going to be the other side, like trying to like, bid against Saudi Arabia. It just isn't. I think Jonathan Wilson wrote, wrote a piece in The, in the Guardian um, uh, this week about, about the Saudi effect. That They are just the primacy they will have in terms of spending power means they can pretty much do what they want. And I don't know what that means for football going forward. 
very briefly, if what you want to do is buy headlines, if you want to do is kind of buy cultural capital and attention, as crazy as these sums are, it's still not a huge amount of money for the the result you get. I mean, you get headlines all around the world. You get people thinking and talking about you all around the world. Like, what else? What else can do that? Like, how many factories do you have to build, or like companies do you have to buy? Like, it, there's almost nothing else you can do with your money that has that kind of global cultural impact. As stupid as the sums look compared to the rest of the football industry. Well, you only have to see what the the you know. What was it? Into Miami's following went up like ten to ten million or something because of Lionel Messi. You know, and I, people are obsessed. And you know, to be fair, he's delivering the storylines uh, so far, isn't he? Um, uh, Slum, what have you made of Liverpool's business? Jordan Henderson aside, um, has the rest of Liverpool's business made you feel less empty? Yeah, I think we started the window strong. We got our midfield sorted, which is what everyone wanted. I think. Yeah, I think. The, the Henderson stuff and obviously the Fabinho as well is very clouding of this transfer window. Um, and whilst we seem to be sorting our midfield in one regard where we've got a bit of a revolving door um, go, situation going on. So, yeah, who knows how we'll perform this season. I think Klopp seems pretty positive. I think fans seem pretty happy with the business so far. There is obviously an interesting question about... Um, who gets the captaincy? Is it going to be Van Dyke as our kind of resident vice captain? I don't know. I'd make a shout for uh, like long-term Trent Alexander-Arnold getting that album, uh, that armband uh, and playing a midfield role. So we will see. Um, but yeah, as I said, my overriding feeling is emptiness and a lack of enthusiasm at the new season. So oh, that's okay. Um, Harry Kane, uh, <laughs> last Harry Kane, there's a, a new flight scheduled for midday today to London from from Munich to London City Airport. And according to official Benji, I'm not aware of who official Benji is, but he maybe he knows his stuff. It's much prefer him to the unofficial Benji. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Jan Christian Driessen and Marco Nepe uh, are the, off to negotiate with Daniel Levy from their tiny private jet. What does that mean? Speaking of emptiness and a lack of enthusiasm, let's have a Harry Kane bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I I, I I'm kind of going back and forth with this a little bit because I've said in the past that oh, it would kind of almost make sense for him just for stay, to stay one year because he'll have more options next summer. You know, if he wants to, if he wants to sort of go and experience something new and and win some things, you know, my Munich would be a good place for him to go. You know, I think that would be a f- tremendously fun experience for him to have. You go to a proper big club. Uh, I know you can make jokes about them winning every year and the Bundesliga being a one-club league, but there are other significant football clubs in that division who who give them some competition. You know, it was the league was alive until the last match day of the season, last season. You know, the huge stadiums, great atmospheres all around the place. I think he'd have a great time. I think in the sense of him having a new experience and doing something that'll enrich his life and his career beyond what he can do at Tottenham. I think that makes more sense than going to Man United, for instance. And if Tottenham could get a reasonable transfer fee for him this summer, then maybe that's for the best. This is going to be a turbulent year for Tottenham anyway. Uh, so if they can make that deal work, that's, um, yeah, that may, that is probably the best thing. I was reading that if, um, if Jay-Z buys Tottenham, he will get Victor Osiman. That's a really exciting move. That's Jay-Z just loves Victor Osiman. He played really well last year, and that's what Jay-Z's interested in. On that 
Joe Lewis thing, Tarek, as someone who has better attention to detail than I do, are there big implications for Tottenham with Joe Lewis and what's happened there? I don't know if I've got better attention to detail than you on, on, on anything here, but um, <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting. One, one, one curious wrinkle here is um, a year ago, there was a, a, a company's house document file that said Joe Lewis had, had transferred... Of course, he lives in, I think, the Cayman Islands of the Bahamas anyway. Uh, it transferred his, his ownership, 70% ownership, of Enoch, the company that owns Spurs, into a family trust that's also based offshore. Isn't football great? Um, and, and it means that he actually... Aren't they one, they're one of the good guys, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It means he actually well. t- isn't, isn't the owner. But what's interesting here is that, obviously, right up until his arrest, right up until these indi- this indictment uh, was, was filed in, in New York, all the stories... We're talking in the in the press, and Joe Lewis was referred to as the owner of Tottenham, and uh, there was a story that the owner Joe Lewis the week before, I think Joe Lewis has told Daniel Levy that he he should sell Harry Kane, um, uh, you know, because hundred million, you know, they need that in the bag. We can't let this guy go for free. And I'm like thinking, hang on a minute, if this guy doesn't own Tottenham, why is he calling calling Daniel Levy and calling the shots? And 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 the the other the thing that's weird here is the club didn't have a problem for for that year with any of the headlines calling Joe Lewis the owner of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And just suddenly, mysteriously, uh, once he's indicted, um, newsrooms around the world are getting calls. So we just want to point out an error in your story from, from like third-party PR companies uh, that Joe Lewis is not the owner of Tottenham. Now, hang on. Didn't have a problem last week. What, what's changed, guys? Yeah, but, but between this, between like the Paratigy going to football jail and this whole thing... And Tottenham also apparently accepting a bid from a Russian club for Davinson Sanchez, so they want to get some some rubles on board as well. Not been a great summer for the Tottenham sort of ethics committee, has it? I mean, generally speaking, the club seems to have kind of lost their way a little bit in in that regard. I, I am conscious that what I just said about Harry Kane is almost the opposite of what I said about him the last time I was on the pod. No one will realize it's okay. Just realize with this with this saga, I've reached the sort of the, the emptiness stage that Salon was so eloquently <laughs> describing. Like I just I don't care anymore. Uh, but I will say, uh, as someone who is a Tottenham sympathizer, him going to Bayern for money this summer is probably the outcome I would prefer, both for him and for the club. I think that's probably the best thing for everyone involved if the transfer fee gets to the sort of level you want to be at. But uh, but goddamn Tottenham, just get your act together. It's all a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah, I should say lawyers for Joe Lewis have accused prosecutors of making an egregious mistake. Uh, he has pleaded not guilty to multiple counts of securities fraud and conspiracy. We'll finish from this from Tom, uh, who says on Saturday, August the 12th, he's joining a, a growing uh, a part of the Football Weekly family. I'll be having my vasectomy. Can we have the big new season preview before then, please? Uh, yeah, uh, we'll do a, a pod on Monday, looking back at the opening weekend of the EFL. And on uh, Wednesday and Thursday, we'll do the big Premier League preview. Lars, your hand is raised. Are you about to have a vasectomy? I hope not. I mean, that would be an unexpected turn of events. Oh, I did have a question for you, Lars. Yes, my question was this. We finish on this because I, I had it in the script earlier on because um, we were on the subject of Erling Braut Haaland. 
And my question was this. Speaking of Erling Haaland, has anyone here recently written a book that is ready to pre-order, which follows Haaland from his early life in Norway as the son of former City player Alfie and his incredible track record as a scoring sensation, becoming his hometown club's top scorer at only 18 and shortly after becoming regarded as one of Europe's best strikers, providing an insight into where Haaland has come from getting to the heart of what makes him tick. Has anyone on the panel written a book a bit like that? Yeah, that all sounds very familiar, Max. Um, We got a question last time I was on what I was doing with my summer because unlike other panellists, I'm not into cricket. The short answer is I've written a book. Uh, It's called Harlan, The Incredible Story Behind the World's Greatest Striker. And it is, as the title would suggest, the story behind Erling Harlan. I guess the short version is it's an attempt at explaining Erling Harlan. If you've ever watched him play football and score all these goals and you found yourself wondering what like what, what's happening with this man how did he become this um I, the book will have some answers for you uh because i kind of i grew up in the same town as him so i've gone pretty deep into his background and uh he he does mention his upbringing in norway quite a lot so the importance uh of that is, is significant and i've explored what that actually means i'd say the book has some pretty unique insights on that and we will then follow his upbringing and how that conditioned everything that came after and his incredible career so far, culminating in a really rather good year last season for Man City. Uh, the book is available for pre-order. It'll be out uh, in uh, November, I believe. It's the uh, 2nd of November, uh, but you can pre-order it already. I'll put a link on uh, Twitter uh, after this. Better or worse than inverting the pyramid? Mm, not for me to say, Max. Not for me to say. <laughs> fewer pyramids. Are, oh, well. fewer pyramids are inverted. Uh, to be yeah. to be fair. Okay. But, um, well, there are no pyramids, presumably, in the town that you and Erling grew up in. Not yet. I'm, not not yet. yet. Maybe there All should right. be. Uh, no, there's m- many more mentions of Bruna in this book, which obviously makes it a far superior work of literature. Uh, well done on writing a book. I've had thank hard you. enough to write 900 words. Uh, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Tarek. Uh, enjoy the game. And we should say Tarek has been d- done the whole pod in a cupboard. And lots of people, I think it's like a <laughs> wardrobe, and people keep walking in to sort of take their jackets off. And Tarek's sort of shushing people as he's making eloquent points. So multitasking of the highest order. Uh, thank you, Tarek. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Elon. Thanks so much. Uh, cheers, Lars. Thank you, Max. Football Weekly back to its regular schedule next week. Episodes on Monday, Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, it is produced by Joel Grove. Today's executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.